Professor Post discusses a variety of national security topics. Professor Post is an assistant director of the Chicago Projects on Security and Threats, or CPOST, and the author of three books, The Economics of War, Organizing Democracy, and Arguing About Alliances. You can follow him on Twitter at Prof. Paul Post. My first question is, why would President Trump's taxing times make any difference whatsoever internationally? There's a, several reasons why Trump's taxes make a difference internationally. Now, on the flip side, before I go into those, the, the argument against that would be to say, well, you know, look, it's his taxes. This is a personal matter. This practice really only started in 1970s. You know, you could go back. It's not always been the case. There's no constitutional mandate that the president release their taxes. So it's it's much more of a norm of a practice. So that would be the argument for why this like, what does this matter? This is just a personal matter. But I think there are reasons why it matters, not just for the United States, but also why it matters internationally. Focusing on the international aspects. First and foremost, President Trump's reputation is as a brilliant businessman. And not just in the United States, but globally, right? There's Trump Towers all over the place. In fact, to the point to where they even talked about there could be a Trump Tower peace, where he will not declare war on any country that has a Trump Tower, right? So his tax returns and his financial state goes to the heart of his reputation, of what he has staked himself on. It's very different than a lot of other presidents where they, you know, their reputation was built on their governance they were a governor or they were a senator, what have you. And so in that case, you want to look at what's more important than their tax records is their voting record, right? You know, you look at how did they vote in the Senate? Um, what did they do as governor? That becomes more important. But for Trump, the tax returns go to the heart of his pre-presidency reputation in business. And Indeed, part of what he sold himself as for why you should vote for him, that, you know, I am a businessman. I can run the United States as a thriving business, just like I have with my own businesses. Right. And so if you see that, then you start to say, whoa, OK, that. <laughs> Maybe this is not the case. And that has implications not just for the voting public in the United States, but internationally as well, that you sit there and you go, how credible is this person? When it, the very thing that brought him or he claimed established him as qualified for the presidency and qualified to make all these decisions on domestic and foreign policy is just not actually there. It's a house of cards. So that's kind of one reason why it matters, again, not just domestically, but also internationally. There's some more fundamental reasons why it matters uh, when you start thinking about it from a foreign policy standpoint. Number one, anybody who goes through a security clearance check, one of the key things they look at is how indebted you are. <laughs> because if you have a lot of debt, they think that you could be susceptible to leverage and potentially foreign power leverage. Um, maybe if you're in debt to a foreign bank that's tied to a foreign government, et cetera. So right away, if it turns out that Trump not only has a lot of debt and that primarily his business is based on debt, but then that debt could be tied to foreign agents or even a foreign government, let's just say it, Russia, <laughs> right? If it could be tied to that, that could have very profound and even disturbing implications for going back and looking at the policies that President Trump has followed, right? That if he's heavily indebted to, say, Russian oligarchs and these Russian oligarchs are tied to the Russian government, you know, say that was what was necessary for him to be able to finance the construction of a latest Trump Tower, what have you, 
that's that's a big concern. Now, we don't know that yet fully. We do know that he's heavily indebted. We don't yet know the full sources of that. From what I've read, there's like Deutsche Bank has a lot of the has lent a lot of the money, but there might be potential Russian ties there. That hasn't been fleshed out yet. But that's an alarm bell that comes off is kind of if he's heavily indebted, is he heavily indebted to a foreign agent and specifically a foreign government? So that's another key reason that this is really matters from a foreign policy standpoint. The final reason is just, you know, part, why is it that we ask presidents to release their taxes, right? Well, part of it is it's a signal of openness. It's a signal of transparency. It's a signal that, hey, I have nothing to hide. Here it is. You can see it all, and it gives you a snapshot into who I am. Whether you were a businessman, and you know Trump wasn't the only businessman who's ever become president, but whether you were in business or whether you were in government, but it just opens this up and allows people to see. And the fact that Trump has been hiding that and hiding that and hiding that and hiding that not only has created concerns for people domestically, but foreign leaders as well. Like, well, what has he got to hide? Like, what is it? Can I fully trust this guy if he won't do the things that all these other presidents have done? And so. So that can have, again, kind of these reputational effects that can lead foreign leaders to be a little bit wary of, if you will, striking a deal with him. What's he trying to hide? What's going on here? So for me, that's the reason why the taxes matter, not just domestically, not just to the U.S. voter, but internationally as well. Another what initially would appear to be an internal issue in nomination for the Supreme Court also has international implications to many people. What would they be? The Supreme Court is, let's be honest, there's a potential that if Trump, when he, let's say that he's voted out of office here in another month, let's say, and then, you know, he actually leaves a peaceful transfer of power and all those things that people are worried about. A big part of his legacy for just a four-year presidency will be the ability to nominate three Supreme Court justices. And that's a huge legacy, especially given the age of the justices that he has nominated. These are all people who could potentially be on the bench for a few decades. As a result, that's not only going to have potentially implications for U.S. domestic law, but for a variety of reasons, it can have implications internationally. Now, why is that? Well, first of all, let's go into some specifics, right? Look at when Trump had, say, the ban on the immigration ban, what he called the Muslim ban, or then he said it wasn't the Muslim ban, it was Muslim-majority countries. No, it wasn't Muslim-majority countries. But you know, regardless of what he called it and how he referred to it, there were all these legal actions against it. Finally, the Supreme Court makes a decision on it, and the Supreme Court makes a decision that he it is indeed permissible for him to put this ban on it. That's one example, a very direct international implication, where if the Supreme Court says, yes, the president is allowed to put this immigration ban on, then that's going to have huge implications for people trying to come to the United States. A little bit of a side note, I was actually surprised when that decision came down that it was only a 5-4 decision. Um, you know, I, I My own view is that U.S. law and the Constitution are pretty straightforward when it comes to the U.S. president having discretion on that policy issue. And so I was actually surprised that it was five to four. I think a big reason why some of the justices voted against was because of his own statements about it being religion-based and so forth. And so that went into it. But the but just strictly the issue of regulating immigration, U.S. laws actually gives a lot of power to the U.S. president to be able to do that. So I was actually surprised it was 5-4. But that's just an example of where the Supreme Court, its decisions can have an immediate and direct impact. Second reason why Supreme Court can have a direct impact, and this is something that is a bit of a point of controversy within 
the U.S. legal system itself, as well as abroad, which is the extent to which U.S. Supreme Court decisions become precedent that other courts used, right? And this is the, the kind of comparative legal um, precedent, right? That, that, you know, this is comparative legal systems and comparative court decisions. And this is an area that some of it is very theoretical. Some of it is something that one would study in law school or a law professor would talk about, but it has very practical implications. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg was actually an advocate of the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, drawing on international law and drawing on the decisions of other courts. Now, she was also careful to say that that shouldn't be the only basis. Um, and in fact, if you go back and look at some of her opinions, a lot of times she'll bring in the international component as like an addition to. She'll say, well, in addition to all these reasons that within our own domestic law, we can also turn to, say, the decision of the European Court of Human Rights and see that they in turn have also made this decision that gives added weight to our decision. The reason why that matters is because in turn, in the case of Ginsburg, she viewed it that, look, if you want other courts to cite the U.S. Supreme Court, we need to cite other courts, right? You know, it's, it, you can't, if we ignore the rest of the world, the rest of the world's not going to draw on us. And so she was a believer in trying to raise the international stature of the Supreme Court. And, and she's not the only one. Uh, Justice Kennedy was big on this. Justin Stevens, big on this. Uh, Breyer was big on this. And so there were, there were other justices who, you know, had addressed these issues and gone into these issues before about trying to raise the stature Supreme Court. Now, there were other justices like Alito who was like, no, like, why should we pay attention to the international? Who cares about this? And Justice Roberts himself, the current um, chief justice of the Supreme Court, he's also kind of kind of indifferent to whether the Supreme Court plays an international role and whether other courts cite it or not, or whether the U.S. Supreme Court cites other courts. But that's another reason why it matters is that the Supreme Court itself can actually play an international role if it chooses to. And again, that requires the justices to actually engage with international law, engage with the law and the decisions of other courts. And then the final reason, a third reason why it matters is the Supreme Court is fundamental to the U.S. checks and balances system. Right. So if the U.S. wants to have a system where other governments can look at it and say, you know, I'm not worried about sudden shifts in policy and dramatic shifts in policy, because I know that if the president wants to do something, first of all, the president has to get approval of Congress. And then even then it could get tied up in courts. And I have confidence that the courts ultimately are going to make a wise decision. Or I guess you, the, the phrase people like to use is calling balls and strikes, a nonpartisan decision, which by the way, I've been in, that's actually one thing I've been impressed with is Gorsuch. He, to me, looking at his decisions, they've been surprisingly along those lines. Like he's made decisions, even though he's a Trump appointee, he's made decisions that have gone against the Trump administration. It's like he's, he seems to be kind of in that direction. But that's the ideal is that you want a Supreme Court that's not partisan. You want a Supreme Court that just simply makes decisions based on the law. And that in turn can raise confidence either when it comes to trade, when it comes to investment, when it comes to adhering to the NATO treaty, for example, all of those that creates confidence. If you know that the Supreme court can serve as a break on the decisions or the momentum of say a single president wanting to change foreign policy. But if that breaks down, if it gets to the point where the Supreme court is just simply rubber stamping 
the views of one particular party, that becomes an issue. That becomes a big issue. And so that's another reason. That's a third reason that overall the Supreme Court and the makeup of the Supreme Court really matters internationally. We've looked at how internal decisions have international implications. What has foreign policy done to help Trump? Yeah, no, this is a nice this this is a nice way of kind of reversing the conversation here, right? Because so far, as you said, we've talked about tax returns and the international implications of something that, at least on the surface, seems like it's a domestic issue. The Supreme Court, at least on the surface, seems like it's a domestic issue, but has these international implications. But yeah, I'm a big advocate of the idea that you can understand the current state of U.S. politics by looking at the past 30 years of U.S. foreign policy, that it is not a product of purely internal factors. And in fact, indeed, the international factors, I think, are primary for explaining that. Now, maybe part of that is because I'm an international relations professor and you know I view everything that way. But I actually do think this is the case. I mean, let's be clear. The first thing out of Trump's mouth when he became a presidential candidate was about the wall. It was a foreign policy issue. It was about immigration. Immigration has always been at the center of his campaign, of his appeal, and indeed of his policies. And so that right there, immigration is a foreign policy issue. And so right away you can see he made that center to who he is. And so you would have to say, well, that probably played a role in why he's president. Now the question becomes, well, why did he make that central to his campaign? Why, why was the wall such an important part? Why did he think that that would be something that would appeal to a certain segment of voters? Because you got to say that he was strategic in this decision. Well, the reason why is let's go back 30 years. Let's go back to the collapse of the Berlin Wall. Let's go back to the end of the Cold War. And when we go back to the end of the Cold War, what we see is suddenly the United States, once the Soviet Union collapsed, we see the United States is in a position of however you want to call it, primacy, supremacy, unipolarity, all these different terms. What are you going to do with that? And the decision at first was, well, it wasn't clear. I mean, during the Cold War, it was very clear what we had to do. It's like, okay, counter Soviets, counter the Soviets, counter the Soviets, counter the Soviets. And that led to a lot of unsavory policies and you know things that we can always talk about at another time. But it was very clear what to do. Once you're the unipolar power, it's like, well, what do we want to do with this? What do we want to do with this position? And the decision ultimately that came out, the, the foreign policy view that came out was twofold. Number one, to preserve that position, primacy. And that actually was a decision made during the George H.W. Bush administration, which was we will not allow the rise of another major power competitor. That was first policy, it was maintaining primacy. Second policy was, well, now that the communism is in retreat, that is a clear signal that capitalism and Western capitalism is supreme and we should spread that. And the best articulation of that in a policy space 
was the Washington Consensus. The Washington Consensus policies of free markets, open, you know, reducing capital controls, opening up countries to free trade. This was done in Eastern Europe. It was called shock therapy, where they would just suddenly open up the economies. This was done in Latin America. This was done worldwide. And so that became the two pillars of U.S. Unipolar U.S. policy during this time of unipolarity was maintain primacy, Washington consensus. Well, eventually, that both of those had blowback. Now, in the case of primacy, it had blowback most notably with 9-11, was suddenly people said, whoa, okay, maybe there's people who kind of don't like the way that the U.S. has been maintaining primacy in a military sphere. Then you also had the issue with economically— this led to concerns about – this led to all the debates. And, and mind you, these debates weren't unique to the 90s or the early 2000s, but it heightened the debates about globalization and about economic globalization and about winners and losers of economic globalization. It was about you know jobs moving overseas, jobs moving to China, jobs moving to Mexico, NAFTA being a good example of this. Remember, NAFTA becomes a big part of the policy. China entering the WTO becomes a big part of U.S. policy. And – that then starts to set these conditions where the Washington consensus policies pursued abroad started to create inequalities at home and started to create people who felt like they were being left out of these policies. And so the combination of having these economic policies that created people who were losers in the United States who weren't winning from those policies combined then with the heightened xenophobia that began with 9-11 then with the global war on terror, then with the Iraq war, then seeing the Iraq war not working and people becoming frustrated with that, you suddenly have a large segment, I would say, a large segment of the electorate that is now tired of the policies that have been pursued by the U.S. since the end of the Cold War. They're tired of pursuing primacy. They're tired of the Washington consensus. They want a change. That came to a head in 2008. That instead of electing – remember, the 2008 campaign was a – on the Republican side, it was the maverick, right? It was John McCain, and it was Sarah Palin, who was a complete outsider in this case. And it was Barack Obama beating out Hillary Clinton, where, of course, Hillary Clinton is very much associated with the establishment view that had started during her husband's administration. And so Barack Obama wins. Largely, I view that it was – a result of this blowback. It was a result of people being tired of the existing U.S. policies that were being pursued on the foreign sphere and how that was having these implications at home. Did it become better? Did the hope and change happen during those eight years? I don't think so. I don't think people saw the changes that they were hoping for. And so as a result, when you get to 2016, it's not surprising that – Someone who's a complete outsider at this case, but is a well-known outsider, comes in and has a campaign totally predicated on pushing back against existing U.S. foreign policy, building walls, pulling out of NATO, pulling out of these institutions that the U.S. had been building since the end of the Cold War or had been enhancing since the end of the Cold War. It's not surprising that somebody like that be, first of all, a Bush Jeb Bush, that was who he beat in the primaries, and then Clinton. <laughs> so it's not surprising that if the policies that people were upset about were associated with Bush and Clinton, 
And it's not surprising that Trump, who offers an alternative, could be voted for over a Bush and a Clinton. And so he becomes president. And so in that sense, I just wasn't surprised by the fact that someone like Trump could become president. And that's the way in which I view that foreign policy actually had a huge effect on the U.S. domestic situation, domestic public. The question then becomes, well, what's going to happen here in a month? Is Biden going to be associated with the establishment? Or is he going to be associated with more of the alternatives, right? So on the one hand, if Obama was viewed as an alternative to the establishment and Biden was his vice president, then that could go in his favor. On the other hand, Biden has a very long political career, long political career and support of these policies of primacy that was pursued by the U.S. following the Cold War. And so it'll be interesting to see, my view is, how voters view Biden. Is he truly going to offer a better alternative than what Obama offered or what Trump offered. Assuming COVID recedes at some stage over the next, who knows, six months, 12 months, and we return to anything near a new normal, in a month's time, regardless of who's president, what challenges do they face on the international relations front? Well, it depends. So if Trump's elected, I think Trump is also aware that first and foremost, is development of a vaccine and distribution of a vaccine, right? And that's going to be really where the politics comes in. I don't think the politics so much on the development side, it's on the distribution side and the extent to which he is working with other countries, because that, that becomes an issue if another country develops the vaccine. To what extent can the United States then help participate or work within that system of obtaining that vaccine? That's going to be a challenge regardless of whether it's Biden or Trump. But I think it's going to be especially a, a, a challenge for Trump just because he has so far kind of shown a tendency to go towards what we call vaccine nationalism, which is we're going to focus on developing our own vaccine. We're going to do it ourselves and forget about everybody else. We're going to defund the WHO, et cetera, et cetera. But if, again, another country develops the vaccine, he's got to now start to try to backtrack some of that to ensure that the United States also gets access to that vaccine. With Biden, same issue, but just he already comes in with a built-in reputation for developing cooperation. I think it would be a more natural expectation as soon as he comes in, he's going to seek out cooperative ways to try to obtain the, the vaccine. So I think that's one, that's an immediate challenge. The bigger challenge, though, and this is also where I don't see a lot of separation between Trump and Biden, is China. This is this is a big is the future and by future I'm talking about over the next decade or so is going to be how does the US relate vis-a-vis -vis China and in particular other countries in that region. And we've talked a little bit about this on the podcast before about how other countries in the region are concerned about the increasing assertiveness in foreign policy of China. They're seeking assistance even under the Trump administration, they're willing to turn to them to seek assistance. And the Trump administration themselves, uh, members of it, like Secretary of State Pompeo, has talked about forming an alliance of democracies to try to balance China's growth. And members of Biden's administration or potential administration have used the phrase League of Democracies, right? So the, both of them, I think, would pursue policies that are not necessarily cooperative towards China. But the key will be, can you do it in a way that doesn't provoke 
major war, right? That doesn't provoke or provoke China to say, enact a fait accompli with Taiwan and put troops there. I mean, that would be the balance is how can you push back against China, but not push too much, right? And so that's going to be, to me, those are the two biggest challenges on the table for whoever is president come January.